Welcome to Staying Connected, a podcast where I talk to other people about their stories with FEDS or vascular Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Staying Connected. This is your host, Katie, and before we get into the show, I want to remind you that the views, information, and opinions in these podcasts are those of the individuals involved and do not represent the opinions of the Marfan Foundation. The Marfan Foundation is not responsible for and does not verify for accuracy any of the information contained in them, nor does the information constitute medical or other professional advice or services. This show is not produced by or affiliated with the Marfan Foundation or the VEDS movement. In our last episode, we talked to Tyler Farley, who was diagnosed with FEDS at 17 years old following a bowel perforation. In today's episode, we're going to talk to Kelly Gann, who was diagnosed with FEDS in 2009 when she was in physician assistant or physician associate school. Kelly shares how she coped with that diagnosis, how her life has changed since then, and how her experience has changed now that her sister Christy has also been diagnosed. Before we go over to the interview, if you want to support this show, consider joining my Patreon. For a few dollars a month, you can make sure this show continues to reach people around the world with real-life stories about vets. You can join the Patreon at patreon.com translucent1, and you can also support the show by sharing this podcast with people you know to help us raise awareness of vets around the world together. Thank you so much for your support, and a huge thanks to my current patrons who have already been supporting the show. My top-tier patrons are listed in the episode show notes. Okay, let's go to the interview. Hey, Kelly, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast to share your story with everybody with vets. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? So my name is Kelly Gann. Um, I'm 41. And I live in Des Moines, Iowa, but I'm originally from Denver, Colorado. And when were you diagnosed with VEDS? I was diagnosed in 2009. Like, how did that come about? So um, the summer of 2009, I developed some groin pain. And uh, I had sort of chalked it up to doing some running that I hadn't previously done before. So it was a new activity. So I thought, oh, gosh, it's just probably some muscle pain. And I kind of ignored it. And then it just didn't really get any better. And um, a couple of weeks later, I developed a really, really, really bad headache, like the worst headache I'd ever had. So I went to an urgent care and I found out that my blood pressure was 180 over 140. Um, so they sent me to the emergency room. And that's sort of where all of this began. That's where the workup began. So, you know, they scanned my head, they scanned my chest, they did EKGs, they did a lumbar puncture, trying to figure out why my blood pressure was so high. And everything was normal. And it was while we were in the ER, my poor husband said to one of the doctors, you know, she's been having this growing pain. And all of us immediately were like, oh, no, no, honey, it's, you know, nobody's worried about the growing pain. Don't worry about it. Um, But turns out um, I had had um, dissections in my iliac arteries. Um, Both of them. In both of them. Yeah. So we didn't find that out for a couple more weeks. Um, what ended up happening is I, uh, one day lost feeling in my toes. And when I tried to walk, I couldn't, I couldn't walk more than a couple of steps without intense pain in my calves. Um, and, uh, a couple of days prior to that, we'd actually gotten a CT angiogram of my pelvis and abdomen. And so I got the results after the, um, the pain and the the numbness had started and that's what showed the dissections. 
So then you had like a flap there that was blocking. Yeah, they said that uh, the dissection, the tear had caused a flap inside and that blocked off blood flow to my feet. And so I didn't even have pulses in the tops of my feet. For so they didn't know still at this time that you had feds. No, absolutely no idea. Um, my dad had died at 40 from what we thought was a heart attack. Mm-hmm. Um, but just being so young, that did sort of pique my, my own primary care doctor's interest. And so she kind of, you know, she kind of recommended like, let's, let's go down this avenue of like, is this autoimmune? Is this a genetic thing since your dad died so young? So mm-hmm. um, she was uh, pretty awesome about just kind of fighting for a diagnosis for me. I was pretty lucky. Yeah, that is really great to have a PCP that's really interested in finding you an answer. Yeah, yeah. She told me at one point, you know, I know there's something going on. You're not crazy because I'm sure a lot of people with VEDS, you know, in their diagnosis stage or their pre-diagnosis stage can kind of um, relate. You know, you you start to feel like, what the heck is going on? Am I I crazy? Am I imagining this? You know? Yeah. So in this year, you had already had the bilateral iliac dissections that you didn't know about. Yep. So like this groin pain and then the severe headache and a really Mm -hmm. high blood pressure episode and like no real answers to any of this. Now, what did they do for your dissections? Yeah. And I, I, yeah, I hadn't had anything prior to this. So, um, so I went to a vascular surgeon, um, for consult, you know, to decide, is this something surgical? Are we going to put a graft in there? Are we going to coil it? Um, but because we really didn't know the reason they decided to treat me with Coumadin blood thinners, um, which I was, How did that go? <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, it went, luckily I, I was really lucky. It went fine. Um, number one, I'm clumsy. Number two, you know, they don't really do that with dissections anymore because you're at such a high risk for a rupture and fear and blood thinners and you start bleeding. I mean, that just complicates things. So um, I've since been told that's probably not something we'll ever do again. So, yeah. But it restored the blood flow to your legs. It did. So eventually it took a couple, it actually it took a few months um, before my, my um, blood flow was not quite back to normal, but to where, you know, it wasn't causing me any problems. Yeah. Now let me go back to, so you said the PCP, you know, really told you like, you're not crazy. There's something going on here. Had you been made to feel crazy? A little bit. Yeah. I mean, in that, um, in August of 2009, August and September, I was probably in the emergency room three or four times Mm -hmm. just because of all the, you know, new symptoms I was having. And a lot of the time it was because my PCP recommended I go, you know, at one point they thought maybe I had a clot, you know, um, And I kept going to the same ER and I kept seeing the same attending. And at one point he was just basically like, I don't know what's going on with you, but I can tell you it's not emergent. And, you know, you probably just have some sort of autoimmune disorder and you really just need to follow up with your, your PCP and stop coming here essentially. So the one who told you to go to the ER. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. So what, what happened next? So she was, so then, um, so she decided that maybe we needed to consult with rheumatology because some of my labs had showed some uh, markers of inflammation and some of my like autoimmune labs were abnormal. So she wasn't sure again, is this genetic? Is this autoimmune? So she wanted a consult. Yeah. So I went and saw this rheumatologist in Denver and he was basically like, I don't know why you're here. I I don't know what your doctor wants me to do. I don't think you have any genetic disorders. I certainly don't think you have, you know, vascular EDS because that was one of the things she was posing as 
as a reason, as a, as a, you know, a theory. He said, I don't think you have vascular EDS. You don't have any autoimmune disorders, but I'll go ahead and send this genetic test. So he sent it out and it came back, you know, a few weeks later and I found out. So I was in uh, PA school at the time when all this is happening. And I found out it was a Friday afternoon. I was in class, so I couldn't answer my phone. And so after class ended, I saw there was a voicemail. They had left me a voicemail telling me I had vascular EDS. And it was, you know, Friday after five. So I couldn't even talk to anybody about it. Yeah. It's a lovely I, way. Yeah, seriously. That's a lot to just kind of process Yeah, as over, like by yourself. Yeah. And I remember was thinking about this. Um, it was one of the nurses that called, you know, and I, it's not their fault. They're kind of told what to do a lot of the time, but I remember she left the message and she said, uh, the doctor just wanted to let, uh, tell me to, um, let you know that you did test positive for, um, is it vascular error? And so she just kind of botched the whole name and, but I knew. Yeah. Poor thing. But now, yeah. had you looked into so the dot, so your PCP kind of was just like maybe vascular EDS. Yeah. Had you looked into it before you yeah. got this voicemail? Especially just knowing my dad's history and, you know, you're, you're in PA school, so you're going through all these medical classes and you have access to all these, you know, medical books and um, databases. And so you run down the rabbit hole for sure. I mean, even when you don't have anything, I think it's really common for medical school students and nursing students. PA students, whatever, um, to sort of, yeah, run down those rabbit holes. And I did, I did. I thought at one point I had like Takayasu's vasculite. I mean, I diagnosed, I diagnosed myself with everything. And, and one of them was, was VEDS. And, um, I knew how, you know, especially back in 2009, I just, I thought that was probably the worst thing that could happen. And, uh, so I tried not to think about it too much, but it was definitely on my own differential. Yeah. That you had done for yourself. So how, how did you, how did you process that information? Like, what was that next? Like, you're in PA school. You've had all these yeah. medical events. You find out you have vascular EDS. Like, how did all of this play out for you? Um, it was it was really tough. Uh, I felt pretty lonely. You know, I had a really awesome, supportive PA class, and the uh, the university was really awesome. They actually started recording classes for me, um, which has since been implemented as like just a a basic thing. But they did that for me, cause I was missing so much class and I was so determined to, to keep going and to finish. And there was definitely, um, a couple of moments where I had to like think really hard about whether or not it was possible for me to continue and, and, and not just physically, but emotionally, I was kind of a mess. So yeah. my husband was super supportive, but it's like, you know, we went and saw a geneticist and it's like, they tell you there's not really anything you can do other like, you know, don't get pregnant. You probably shouldn't get pregnant. Um, you know, think like weird things like don't go scuba diving. You know, I used to hike a ton and they said no more backcountry hiking, you know, um, be careful with yoga, you know, all, all that. Yeah. Um, so it just felt like a lot had been taken away from me and it was tough to get through. And I know I could do the math, but how old were you in 2009? Uh, 28, 29, 28, 29. Okay. Yeah. That's a weird age to get a diagnosis. Like that's when yeah. I, I got mine at 28. I just turned yeah. 28. And it just like, like you, I had been athletic for the, for a good majority of my life. Um, and it just felt like it explained everything. 
Yep. But it also took so much away from me. Yeah. At that time. And it was just a huge life changer at a very strange age. Yeah. To have to try to adjust to that. So how how did you adjust to that? Um I mean, honestly, in the beginning, not very well. Uh I, I sort of just buried myself in school and I kind of I you know, um, you and I have kind of talked about this a little bit, but um I, initially I tried to find some support groups and you know just people to talk to but there was just not really anything out there and so I just studied a lot I just studied and I studied and I studied and when I wasn't studying I would read and I I mean I used to read like even in PA school a book a week like I would just yeah I just kind of buried myself in it um and then that led to me graduating from PA school and then getting my first job and I just kept so busy that um, you know, it wasn't until my second vascular incident that I really started to, you know, try and take care of myself and, and sort of process some of this. Yeah. When was your second vascular event? Uh, it was last February, February, 2021. And I had, um, aortic dissection, abdominal aortic dissection, renal, left renal artery dissection and a renal infarct. So how, what were the symptoms of that for you? Yeah. I, uh, I woke up and I just felt really, really sick to my stomach, which had kind of happened with my iliac dissections. And so I just remember that morning I was like, oh, this feels familiar. And I just, I just knew, I knew something was going on. I had really bad flank pain. Um, I felt super nauseous, felt like I had to throw up. And then um, that flank pain kind of developed into chest pain and it took me down to the ground. I couldn't get up. And so I yelled for my husband and we actually called an ambulance because uh, I thought this is it. <laughs> yeah. You know, I had that, that moment. Um, and so, uh, took me to the ER, they did scans, they found a renal artery dissection. They, um, consulted with a vascular surgeon here in Des Moines. And he said, that's not why she's having pain. So they sent me home. And then I went two more times that week to the ER and it, you know, it wasn't until the, the third visit to the ER that they saw that the renal artery dissection had progressed into the, had, had kind of run into the aorta and had caused an aortic dissection. And then I was in the ICU. And how long were you in the ICU? I was there for, <laughs> I was there for four days. I was in the hospital, I think five days total, but the first four were in the ICU. Mm-hmm. And that was, um, that was interesting. Uh, the reason I was in the ICU for so long was because the vascular surgeon surgeon wouldn't come down to con- he wouldn't physically come down to consult. They had to like like we had to write a report about it. It was crazy. Wait, tell me more about that. <laughs> so I had been in the ICU for like 24 hours and I hadn't eaten anything and I hadn't, you know, drank. They wouldn't even let me drink water because they were like, well, I don't know if this is surgical or what. But the vascular surgeon wouldn't give them any orders and he wouldn't come down and like lay hands on me and, and see me um, until, so my, my husband, <laughs> he's seriously saved my life a million times, I swear. He went out to the charge nurse's desk and was like, what the heck is going on? Like, we need some answers. She's sitting in here. We haven't talked to any doctors. Like, what's going on? And um, so the charge, charge nurse had no idea. And she's like, oh my God. And so it got elevated up to like hospital administration. Wow. And yeah. And they basically were like, they told the surgeon, like, you need to come down here. Like you admitted that she was admitted under your name. You have to give orders. Like you have to tell us what to do. And so he finally came down, you know, and uh, basically 
he said, you're not surgical. Like we wouldn't do surgery on you here in Des Moines anyways. And like, I really don't feel comfortable with your case. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll take care of you here while you're in the hospital, but yeah. Did you have follow-up somewhere else at a different major center or? <laughs> so I followed up with him and then he told me again that he just was really uncomfortable. And, you know, on one hand, I'm, I'm happy that he let me know that, you know, cause I don't want to waste my time. Um, so I tried to go to Mayo insurance wouldn't cover it. And so now I'm at university of, um, Iowa hospital system, okay. which is two hours away from my home. So I don't really know how, how helpful it is. Yeah. And that's an interesting point to bring up as well, because I, so I have a, I guess I would call it a belief system at this point that like, it's really important to have a local team for emergencies, but also have that expert care center. Yeah. That, you know, so like I lived in Florida and I had a doctor like two hours away that, you know, ideally like I wouldn't have an emergency and I wouldn't have to go there. Right. But right. it could be helicoptered there. But the the major concern that I had is that I didn't have any local emergency care team or anybody to advocate for me yeah. in an emergency. So I think that those two pieces are really important. I think they're extremely important. And I wish um, so I've lived in Des Moines for seven years. When I lived in Denver, um, I felt much more comfortable with my care team, but I took it for granted. You know, I thought, and especially being a PA student, I thought, oh, you know, the doctors are going to be great wherever you go, you know, you're whatever people are going to take care of you. And we moved to Des Moines and there's, there's nothing wrong with Des Moines or its hospital systems. I just don't think that it's as robust in terms of providing the kind of specialty care that some folks might need, like some folks with beds. Um, Like I said, the only vascular team here in Des Moines doesn't want to touch me. Yeah. You know, so the the next closest vascular team is two hours away. So it's like in the event of an emergency, yeah, I'd have to be, you know, helicoptered somewhere or, you know. Um, And so I I kind of wish um, when my husband and I were, you know, deciding to make the move to the Midwest that we'd sort of thought about that. Yeah. I I would encourage anybody, you know, with beds that's moving, just just think about that. Like really that should be one of your, um, that should be one of the things that should take precedence over other things. So just making sure there's somebody to take care of you in the event of an emergency. Even if like I used to do a lot of calling ahead before I moved back to Florida, trying to get my care team set up. I mean, it is a hassle and it is is exhausting. And to switch them. Oh gosh. Yeah. (laughs) I like have a, I'm sure you do too, but I have like a notebook with all my crap yeah. in it. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So I want to go back actually to your features of VEDS because we didn't really cover those when you were first getting diagnosed. Yeah. I know that the the diagnosis itself kind of made sense because of your dad's history, mm-hmm. but did you see any of those features in yourself as well? Yeah. Oh my gosh. I had the worst bruising growing up. I mean, and I've, I've heard beds, other beds folks say this, but that like, oh, they thought my parents abused me because I had so many bruises. And I did. I had so many bruises. And I am also very, very, your blog is the translucent one, I know. And I have very translucent skin. Like you can, you know, you can see my veins. And yeah. um, I just feel like that makes the bruises show up even more than maybe they would on somebody that's a little bit darker skinned. But um I used to get teased for my bruises, which is the most ridiculous thing. So I just, I remember bruises, 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 bruises. Um, I also, um, I was always, I always thought it was because I was clumsy. Like people used to call me clumsy, but I think I just have really loose joints. Like I'm, you know, I just got done breaking my foot 
for like the second time. So, um, my ligaments in my ankles are loose. I'm double jointed in my knees. I'm double jointed in my elbows. Um, most recently in the last couple of years, I started getting skin tears. Um, like I always tell people I have old lady skin, even though I'm, I'm only 41. I'm not an old lady, (laughs) but, um, my, my skin tears like it does. Um, what else? Uh, I, you know, the, the thin upper lip, I feel like I have that, Mm -hmm. uh, the lobeless ears. Um, those are all those minor things. Yeah. But all those minor things together really paint a picture. Yeah. Yeah. That's the kind of thinner nose and, Mm -hmm. um, and I, I look similar. I, my sister and I both have real similar features to my father's. So it all kind of makes sense. Yeah. So let's talk about your sister. So she's being interviewed in the same season. Yeah. Christy. Yeah. Yep. And she was diagnosed last recently. Yeah. Very recently. So I'm not going to, I don't want to go too far into sure. like her story because she's sharing that. Mm-hmm. But how did that like, how does it feel for you? Like, it seems like for a while, you know, you were diagnosed in 2009 and you didn't really have a lot of resources available and you just kind of buried yourself in your work and your studies and doing things that you'd enjoy. And then your sister's diagnosed like years later. Like, how is that for you? I mean, a bummer. I was really bummed out about it for her, you know, that you don't, you don't want to join the club. You don't want anybody else to join the club, but, um, and, and, I feel guilty about this, but on the other hand, it made me feel like I wasn't so alone. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like it's hard for her right now. So we haven't had a ton of discussion about it, but at least I know that there's somebody out there, you know, that I can reach out to and, and say, Hey, this is going on. And, mm-hmm. you know, she'll be like, Oh yeah, I have, I have that same thing. Or I was wondering about the same thing or, you know, so at least there's like, I don't know, company <laughs> in this miserable diagnosis, but so yeah, it's, it's sort of a plus minus sort of thing. Um, also because of her diagnosis and, and wanting to help her sort of cope with all of this. Um, I started, I, I got back on the bandwagon and I started looking at, well, I found the beds movement, which I didn't even know it. I didn't even know it existed. It's crazy. Um, cause again, I had just sort of given up on it in 2009 when I couldn't find anything. And, um, so now I'm just learning that there are so many more opportunities to meet people like me um, and, and so many other resources that weren't there before. So support groups, all that. So, yeah. How has that felt for you? Um, I haven't started any support groups yet. I'm not going to lie. I've just been, you know, it's, it's almost like I'm going through the diagnosis again. Like it's almost like, again, like I said, I'm kind of, I feel like I'm finally processing it. I have the time to process it. Um, and, but it's just nice to know that at least it's out there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And it wasn't, it didn't exist before 2019. (laughs) Just general EDS groups, which nothing wrong with other EDSers, but that's, that's a little more complicated. Yeah. There's a lot of loss. There is a lot of loss, a lot of loss to deal with. Now, do you, have advice for other people who are just diagnosed with this? Um, yeah. And, um, been thinking a lot about that, uh, especially just talking with my sister, but just, um, I think making sure that you stick to your guns, like if, you know, making sure that you're heard, if you're seeing a a physician in the ER and a primary care and a consult office, whatever it is, 
just make sure that you stick to your guns and tell them what's going on and make sure you're heard and, and don't let them tell you that you're crazy and don't let them make you feel like you're crazy and, and just really push to get what you need. Advocate yourself. That's such good advice. And it's hard sometimes because really like there is a lot of, there can be a lot of shame and feeling like you go to the ER, you try to advocate for yourself, you think you're having an event and then nothing yep. is there. Then you don't have it. And then they make you feel like you're dumb for coming in or you wait a little bit too long and you go in and then they shame you for waiting too long. And it's just like, it's just, I feel like, yeah, there's just a lot of heaviness surrounding um, the decision of whether or not we should go to the ER and seek emergency care, you know, cause it's, it's, it's terrifying to walk around and, know that any little pain could be it, you know, that that could be the the one thing, you know? And so you're already terrified and then to feel like an idiot or to be made to feel like an idiot or to made to feel, you know, shamed when you're going to seek that medical care, that, that just sucks. Yeah. I mean, it does, there's not a, you know, there's There's really no reason for it. Yeah. There's no No, reason no reason for it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, that is really good advice. And it is like, you know, at some point you have to kind of recenter and say like, okay, like it's okay for me to go to the ER and for nothing to happen. In fact, that's a good thing, right? Like you don't want a life threatening emergency, but even, you know, just letting go of that shame because you have no other way to know. Don't let them make you feel, don't, don't let them make you feel stupid. Yeah. It's about you. You know, don't let, don't let them make it about them. (laughs) And by them, I mean the medical system. Like it's about (laughs) you. It's about what you need. And, you know, yeah. So let's go back. So you are a PA or, um, so which is a physician's assistant for anybody Mm who is listening and doesn't know. I guess it's physician associate now. But that's another, yeah. Oh, I like that better actually. It makes it sound (laughs) Yeah. Much yeah. You're not somebody's assistant anymore. So yeah. <laughs> that's great. So PA stands for yep. physician associate to becoming. Yep. Yep. To becoming. Yep. Um, do you have advice for other medical professionals in the field? Yes. Listen, <laughs> just, I mean, it's the first thing we're taught in school is that, you know, the patient's history is the most important part of your entire interaction. It, you know, the exam, sure, it's, it's important too. And your, your labs and your diagnostics, it's important, but it's not as important as what the patient is saying. And so you, you just have to take the time and you have to listen. And while I empathize, I, I totally empathize with what medical professionals have to do and what they're asked to do. And, um, you know, they're, they're asked to see too many patients, quite frankly. And I think, you know, especially by the end of the day or by the end of the shift, they're exhausted, but you still have to listen and you, you can't gaslight people. Like you can't just put people in boxes. You, you have to listen to that individual story. And part of, you know, being a medical professional is, to, to help people and to make them feel better. And so even if you feel like something is ridiculous, if it, you know, if, if a scan would make someone feel less anxious and feel better about what's going on, then get the scan. Yeah. I know you have to contend with insurance companies and, you know, hospital administration, but at the end of the day, it's about the patient in front of you. So do your best and listen. Such great advice. I love that advice. It's yeah. hard, but yeah. Now you, so you saw like a lot of patients cause you worked in urgent care, right? 
Yeah. So my first, so I was a PA. I'm kind of in sort of semi-retirement right now, trying to figure out what's going on. Um, my first, I was a PA for 10 years. The first eight years I spent working with um, the underserved, undersured, underinsured, uninsured, um, Hispanic, Spanish speaking population. Um, and then the last two, three years of my career, I spent in urgent care. So I was seeing anywhere from 30 to 70 patients a day in a 12 hour shift. Now, what is this? What made you step away? Like yes. the, the last dissection? Yeah. Um, I, both times I've had a vascular incident, um, have been during some of the most stressful times of my life. So, um, I think, I, I think I'm contributing the stress to, you know, I mean, obviously like I've had, so something's going to happen maybe no matter what, but I think that stress directly contributed. I really do, you know, cause you're stressed, you're, your cortisol and your stress hormones go up. And so then your blood pressure goes up and then that can lead to a deadly dissection or a rupture. So I have decided to step away for a bit to sort of reevaluate my career and just figure out what's right for me. Yeah. Are you doing anything fun while you're, while you're reevaluating? You know, <laughs> I went on a four week camping trip recently. So that was nice. Um, through the mountains, through the Northern Rockies and, um, Montana, uh, the Dakotas. That sounds lovely. Yeah. I read a lot. I puzzle a lot. What else do I do? I love wine. Don't tell anybody that. <laughs> you want me to cut that out of the? No, it doesn't <laughs> I love wine. Um, Say it yeah, out. I, I like, <laughs> I tr- we try to take, you know, little road trips and stuff. That's, that's yeah. probably what we do most. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story on the podcast. I really hope that it helps reach people who need to hear it. Me too. Thanks for allowing it to happen. Thanks for, thanks for doing this. Absolutely. All right. I look forward to, to meeting you one day. Yeah, you too. Thanks everyone for tuning in today. And thank you, Kelly, for sharing your story with us. On the next episode on December 10th, which was the last episode of this season, we will talk to Katie DeCourcy, whose son and husband both have VEDS. Don't forget to subscribe to staying connected on your podcast player so you don't miss any future episodes. And if you like this show, I hope you will consider sharing it with your friends on social media to help us raise awareness of VEDS together. You can also support the production of this podcast by joining my Patreon at patreon.com translucent1. Thank you so much, and I will see you soon.